Thanks, Terry. So as Terry's told you, I'm here today to talk to you about a collaborative effort that I've initiated with my brother, Dr. C. Michael Stinson, and he's a biologist with experience in phylogenetic studies, including DNA-based research. And what we're trying to do is extract and analyze the DNA found in the leaves of medieval parchment codices. As many of you are aware, certainly in this audience, the bibliographical data preserved in medieval manuscripts, and this would include things such as how gatherings were sewn together to form codices, what marginalia can tell us about who used a book and how, or how pigments were made and applied. All of these things are of great importance to codicological studies, to textual criticism, literary studies, and art history. But there's one category of bibliographical information that's almost invariably present in parchment, and it's proven to be accessible through scientific analysis, but so far it's not been utilized in any of those disciplines. And, as you might guess, the information is the DNA contained in the animal skins from which this parchment was made. So my project seeks to address this omission. And we're working in partnership with two well-known curators of manuscripts. This would be Will Knoll of the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and Christopher DeHamel of the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College and Cambridge University. And we're hoping to develop testing techniques that will let us access this data in a safe and usable fashion. And hopefully, this will increase our knowledge of manuscript production and transmission substantially and catalyze new paths of inquiry and fields of study. First, I'd like to start with just a little narrative, how this project came to be, and then I'd like to talk to you about some of the possibilities that it offers. The project began, as many things do, out of some combination of inspiration and frustration. The frustration that the old ways of doing things were not working nearly as well as one should hope. At the time, I was working to finish my dissertation, and this entailed creating a digital archive of medieval English manuscripts containing the 14th century alliterative poem, The Siege of Jerusalem. The manuscripts containing this poem, like most containing medieval English alliterative verse, were just workaday volumes, fairly plain manuscripts, typically literary or liturgical miscellanies. And then I began to attempt to date and localize these manuscripts in order to write the descriptions of them. And I ran head-on into a set of frustrations known all too well to editors of Middle English text and to scholars and students of the manuscripts that contain them. The problem with manuscripts of this sort, except in those cases where we have reliable dating from a text or an inscription, is that our best tools for localizing and dating them are notoriously faulty. The reason for this is as follows. Our best tool for localizing Middle English manuscripts is dialect analysis. Then, as now, regional dialects were pronounced in England. Unlike now, spelling was not standardized, so the spelling reflected these regional variances in speech. Thus, we can use the spellings to a certain extent. Uh, we can use these conventions to make educated judgments of where the texts were likely copied. However, the process is fraught with lots of problems. Some scribes were more energetic than others in converting what they were looking at into their own dialect. And we often see fusions of many dialects in one manuscript. And of course, scribes, like manuscripts, were mobile. So you might have a scribe born in Kent, living in an abbey in York, copying an exemplar from Warwick. And what's going to win out in this situation? His native dialect, the dialect of the area where he spent his adult life working, or the dialect in his exemplar. It's going to be some fusion, likely, of those. But it gets worse, because in this situation, this hypothetical manuscript from Warwick is itself probably going to have traces of lots of dialect, revealing layers of this same process in the past. So this evidence isn't very exact, but really it's the best we have. Meanwhile, our best tool for dating Middle English manuscripts is often paleography. Dialect analysis does factor in there as well, but with some of those same problems and caveats. You can map dialect temporally as well as geographically, but the situation is quite complicated for some of the reasons I just mentioned. So often we must rely on paleography. And our knowledge of English handwriting and its origins and developments continues to grow. And in many cases, it's useful in at least giving us a rough sense of the decades. But there are similar problems. So for example, this, this hand that looks like it's from 1450, is this the hand of a teenager who just learned his trade? 
or is this the hand of the eldest member of the monastery who's been writing pretty much in that hand for all those years? Or is what we're looking at the work of a country gentleman, a copyist who has a sort of distinctive hand, he wasn't trained professionally, and it belies our effort to try to date it. And so there I was, I was attempting to use these means to date and localize manuscripts, and I was finding myself frustrated at their many pitfalls. I should mention here that my lack of expertise at the time compounded all this, and maybe it gave me an advantage, an advantage in that someone who was really accomplished in these two fields might have been able to get reasonably close enough and say, well, this is the best that we can do in the state of the art, and this settles it. This, however, was my first stab at doing this sort of work, and I realized almost immediately that to become an expert in either Middle English dialect and its shifts in localization or in Middle English paleography, that these were tasks ready to occupy entire careers. Furthermore, to some extent, the groundwork in both these fields is still being laid. There are still things that we're trying to figure out, boundaries that we're trying to find both geographically and temporally. So the tools are not only difficult to acquire, but once they're acquired, they're difficult to wield with much accuracy. And I thought, there has to be a better way, right? And then it occurred to me, these are animal skins I'm looking at, so what about DNA? This should be able to do this. To back up a bit, at this time, I was just getting to know manuscripts in their physical form. And indeed, this was one of the things I enjoyed most about where this research had led me. The manuscripts containing these texts were some of the ones that text I was editing, that is, were some of the first I'd ever held in my hand, and I was fascinated from the start. I admired the stories that they had to tell, the telltale traces left by previous users, the marks and wear of their upkeep or neglect in the centuries between their creation and my encounter with them. And I was struck as well as many are who encounter manuscripts for the first time with the animalness, if you would, of these objects. The lumpy brown bindings, the feel and smell of the parchment leaves, and the fact that I held in my hands, in one volume, dozens of animals, a herd, perhaps whole herds of animals in one book. I was struck by this. And then everything converts. This frustration with paleography and dialect analysis as tools for dating and localizing, this fascination with manuscripts and a desire to learn everything I could about their physical characteristics. And then this particular fascination with parchment, which has led some of my curator buddies whose sleeves I'm always tugging on to call me parchment head since then. All these things led me to say, how about DNA? These are animal skins, so they should have DNA. And isn't DNA a tool used to date biological materials? And if we had DNA from dated and datable manuscripts, couldn't we map this against the DNA from others that we thought to be from the same time and place? It turns out I'm luckier than most to experience such moments, for it so happens that my brother has experience in phylogenetics, which is the study of evolutionary relatedness among various groups of organisms, so species, populations, that sort of thing. His specialty is ornithology, and I had heard all these adventures of him going off to Costa Rica to capture birds and nets and take blood in vials. I'd been to his lab where they had all these machines spinning these vials of blood, and other folks were sort of mapping genetic relationships between crocodiles and alligators and families of snakes and birds. I thought this was very fascinating. Um, and meanwhile, we had talked about uh, my work in editing, and we had talked about using phylogenetic software to trace descent and relationship from text, which is something that has been attempted in the past. And to give you just the briefest notion of how this works, uh, the answer is not very well. That's the short answer. But the, the theory is, since if you think about it on one level of understanding it, text are, are series of letters. They're sequences of letters. That's what texts are in one way of understanding it. Um, and of course, DNA as a code expresses a sequence of letters. And the software is designed to map shifts in the sequence of letters. And therefore, uh, there's some thought that, well, if it can do that, couldn't it map, say, scribal changes or the sorts of changes exactly that editors would map in schematics? And couldn't the software be used for that? So he and I had sort of taken a stab at this and uh, determined, well, probably not so much. But anyway, the, sh the short of it is, suffice it to say for the purposes of this talk, I was already interested in his work in DNA. He was already interested in my work with editing, and we had already had this dialogue going about how uh, phylogenetics might feature into my work editing. Well, when this thought struck me, I was lying in bed, and I 
Uh, so I jumped up and I went back to my computer and I sent him an email saying, could DNA survive in parchment? And I sent him a link describing the chemistry and the process of it making. <clears throat> I went off the bed. And when I woke up the next morning, there was an email back from him. Yes. And so that began what is now heading on two years of work to try to turn this into a reality, this potential. Before we move on to where the project stands now and where it's headed, I should take a moment to discuss briefly what parchment and DNA are. As I've already noted, parchment's made from the skins of animals, usually calves, goats, or sheep in Western manuscripts. And I, I focus in sheep on this talk in part because they make for a nifty title and in part because Terry designed such a wonderful poster. But really, <coughs> what we're talking about here is, is, cuts across the board. We'll be dealing with, with calves, goats, and sheep. Many English manuscripts are on sheepskin. Some French manuscripts also, it's fairly common. Elsewhere, it's not so common. So for instance, if you go to Italy, you're going to see goat skin. And even in England and France, it tended to be more prestigious manuscripts weren't on sheepskin either because sheepskin has a tendency to wrinkle and yellow over time, which isn't a particularly desirable feature for a book. So perhaps to tell you what parchment is, there's, there's no better way than to read you a medieval recipe of parchment making here which involves goat skins, not sheep. Take goat skins and stand them in water for a day and a night. Take them and wash them till the water runs clear. Take an entirely new bath and place therein old lime and water mixing well together to form a thick, cloudy liquor. Place the skins into this, folding them on the flesh side. Move them with a pole two or three times each day, leaving them for eight days and twice as long in winter. Next, you must withdraw the skins and unhair them. Pour off the contents of the bath and repeat, which I'm told, by the way, from modern parchment makers, this particular face stinks horribly. Place the skins in the lime liquor. Move them once each day over eight days as before. Take them out and wash them well until the water is quite clean. Place them in another bath of clean water and leave them for two days. Take them out, attach the cords, and tie them to the circular frame. Dry, then shave them with a sharp knife, after which leave for two days out in the sun. Moisten with water and rub the flesh with powdered pumice. After two days, wet it again by sprinkling with a little water and fully clean the flesh side of pumice so as to make it quite wet again. Then tighten up the cords, equalize the tension so that the sheet will become permanent. Once the sheets are dry, nothing further remains to be done. And this is from a 12th century manuscript. It's British Museum Harley 3915 is the manuscript. So in short, Parchment is animal skin that's been soaked in a lime bath, dehaired, stretched on a rack. It's worked with a knife to make it smooth and even, and of an even thickness, and the desired thickness that you want, uh, stretched and dried. The stretching of the parchment not only lets you work it with the knife while it's tight, but it's also what makes the parchment opaque. My brother and I went to the Walters Art Museum and met with Abigail Quant, who's a conservation scientist there. And she had a, an entire calf skin that had been made in parchment, uh, the fashion of you know putting it in the lime skin, soaking it, dehairing it, but not stretched. And you could see through it. It was, it was very strange. It was a translucent piece of animal skin. And this had been dried on glass rather than stretching. So the stretching has those two purposes to it. Next, what's DNA and how might it be used for purposes such as those I'm suggesting here? Well, I'll only give the brief explanation. I probably don't know enough. So... I'll be brief here. This is my brother's forte. You probably already know the basics of DNA, that it's a sort of blueprint, as it's often called, that conveys and stores genetic information. And you know that it occurs in the now iconic double helix format, which you've seen on the poster for this talk, if you've seen one of those posters. And you know, because I just mentioned that DNA can be expressed as a sequence of letters, and that within a species, the sequence is almost all identical of letters. And the part that makes one individual from another uh, would differ slightly. Thus, it's evident usefulness in crime forensics, where we could say, yes, this is human blood. Moreover, this is human blood that could only have come from this individual human, and so forth. Also, you probably know, DNA can inform us about lineage and parentage, and thus its usefulness for parental testing, in which you can say, this baby is the biological child of this particular adult. And that's why it's useful for parchment forensics as well. If we can identify pieces of parchment to the level of individual organisms and conclude which other individuals these are descended from, there are all sorts of exciting possibilities. More on those in a moment. 
The technique we'll be using to get this data is polymerase chain reaction. It's just simply called PCR usually. And what it does is amplify fragments of <coughs> DNA exponentially, by which I mean if you have a gene or a series of genes, think one little section of those sequenced letters. Typically, most laboratory techniques require a relatively large sample in order to do their work. But this technique takes a sample and replicates it over and over again, providing from a small bit of biological material enough of a sample to accomplish what you need to accomplish in the laboratory. The technique was invented by Kerry Mullis in 1983, and it's revolutionized everything from crime forensics to prime time television programming, as any of you know who watch any of the CSI programs or other sort of crime dramas. It's sort of hit pop culture pretty well. PCR can isolate and amplify specific regions of DNA. So, for example, that bit that makes this organism clearly a sheep or that bit that would make this individual sheep versus this individual sheep over here, who happens to be his first cousin, by the way. The amplification then provides a sufficient amount of the gene needed to do the test. PCR can work from a very small amount of usable DNA from the material being analyzed, and this is crucial to the DNA surviving in medieval parchment for two reasons. One, because DNA degrades over time. It's, it's essential that we be able to test very small bits. Two, most curators aren't especially keen on giving us relatively large chunks of biological material from their manuscripts, and so it's very important that we can work with cells here. So what scientific groundwork has there been to date that we're building from? Only a handful of experiments have so far attempted to extract and analyze DNA from the parchment and manuscripts. Early work, uh, such as that attempted by two scientists, one named Jay Berger and the other N. Poulakakis, indicates that it is possible to extract and amplify usable DNA from parchment using PCR, and then to use this DNA to identify the species from which the parchment was derived. Berger et al., he and his colleagues, they show simply that DNA can be derived from the leather in book bindings and in parchments. Now, before you get too excited, David Vandermeulen, I should mention that um, the, the process of creating leather tends to destroy <coughs> DNA fairly thoroughly. So they got a tiny bit of mitochondrial DNA, which is what you're after in book bindings. Mostly it's destroyed. It survives quite well in parchment. So there is some hope for book bindings, not nearly as much as parchment. They did show it survived, and they identified the species. Pulukakis and his colleagues analyzed three Greek manuscripts to show that they have, quote, goat-related DNA, and they hope in the future to use the DNA from wild and domesticated goat herds to, to hopefully show some sort of regional affiliation of these manuscripts. No studies yet have gotten beyond identifying to the level of the species, though. And I should mention here that there are lots of people, there are quite a few in this room, Albert Derrillet, Terry Bellinger, who can do this by looking at it in most cases. They could say, um, this is sheepskin, this is goatskin, this is calfskin. Certainly most conservation scientists can. If not by naked eye, they can do it with a microscope. So it's exciting that they've shown that this survives to the level of individual species. Uh, but on the other hand, if we're going to get really significant results, we have to push it to the individual organism. There are a few sort of you know, gee whiz things you could do with identifying a species. You know, there are those rumors of, of medieval rat and squirrel parchment, and there are some exciting things like zebra manuscripts or, uh, you know, camel manuscripts that aren't actually that uncommon in some places. But by and large, there's, there's, real, there's not much meat here to get, to get at, unless we can get to individual organisms. So our goal is to continue on the research that's been done so far. Uh, which, by the way, has involved only scientists sort of being curious, is there DNA in this, is there DNA in this, is there DNA? and they've tested all sorts of museum specimens. They were not working in conjunction with, with curators or, or historians of the book or codicologists. So our goal is, one, the simultaneous identification of DNA samples at the level of individual organism, and two, the utilization of this data to analyze medieval book production and manuscript transmission practices. So that's what we're really trying to do here. And as I mentioned earlier, we have created partnerships with two curators, Christopher DeHamel of the Parker Library and Will Knoll of the Walters, to get feedback on our techniques and hopefully um, 
as they develop and we find safe testing techniques to use these tests for scholarly studies of the manuscripts in their collections. Although I should say up front that none of the initial tests are being conducted on anyone's manuscripts, which you have to be very careful with. Well, they're being conducted on ours, but we're not doing our initial pawing around on Walters or Parker Library manuscripts. Perhaps the closest study to the one I'm proposing was a brief grant-funded project carried out by Christopher Hamill, previously mentioned, and the geneticist Christopher Howe, who's his colleague at Corpus Christi College. Their study, like others mentioned, confirmed that DNA from parchment can be amplified to the species level using PCR, but their project was discontinued after a brief time uh, because of a couple reasons. One, the grant funding ran out, and two, the postdocs doing the, la the, the leg work in the lab, the main person got a job and left. So it was discontinued, and as these things happen with grant-funded projects. In June of 2006, I went to Cambridge and met with DeHamel and Howe, and they offered their help and support as we continue these tests, which is very important. The Parker Library at Corpus Christi College is especially well-suited to the aims of our project because the core of its collection is a group of about 480 manuscripts collected by one man, Archbishop Matthew Parker, all collected during the 16th century. Up until the time of Parker's intervention, most of these manuscripts had remained together in medieval monastic libraries. As Dr. DeHamel explains, this not only preserves information about what was being read in monasteries during the medieval era, but it also provides the rare opportunity to study closely related medieval English manuscripts that have remained together in groups for centuries. And this is a quote from personal correspondence with him. The library was formed from a relatively small range of sources, all in England and within a short period, with very large clusters of books brought to Cambridge en bloc from the two monasteries of Canterbury, especially, but also from Worcester, St. Albans, Winchester, and Exeter. Parker's collecting practices and the continual maintenance of these books in one small but enormously important library provides us an unusual opportunity to study groups of manuscripts that can be linked to one locality, and thus to study the relationships of the herds of animals whose DNA is preserved in these books. This combined with cooperation offered by DeHamel, a recognized expert on medieval book history, and Howe, who has expertise in experiencing and analyzing ancient DNA, makes the Parker a singularly valuable place to begin our work. And that term, ancient DNA, even though as literary or historical scholars we would call this period medieval, geneticists would call this ancient DNA at this point, or, or ADNA for short, as it's often called. In the person of Christopher DeHamel, we find a combination of a world-renowned experts on manuscript and a curious mind interested in what we can learn about manuscripts from science, as is evidenced by his involvement in this project from the start. And also, for, as those of you who have met him will know, he's, he's a very exuberant and, and sort of full-of-life figure. When I first talked to him about this, he was very welcoming of our project, and he was very encouraging and also very clear about his frustration that a, the scientists hadn't gotten the data he wanted, and B, they hadn't continued. And so he, his, his story says, you know, they called me over to the lab. They were so excited, and they're jumping up and down saying, we think it's a cow, we think it's a cow. He says, I think it's a cow, too. And that was it, you know. So he's ready to get on with his work, and he's happy to collaborate with us and help, which is a great benefit. The Walters Art Museum, meanwhile, holds an impressive collection of more than 900 illuminated manuscripts, that date from 300 B.C. all the way through the 19th century. Because the Walters family collected books primarily for their physical beauty and the art contained with them, they amassed a particularly diverse collection. So it's in, in, that, in some way, then, it's the opposite of, of what we see at the Parker Library. It includes Western European, Persian, Armenian, and Byzantine codices. The collection is a true gem by any standards, and it's all the more valuable to us because of its proximity to Johns Hopkins University it's just barely over a mile on south on the same road as the campus where I work on, the Hopkins Homewood campus. Also because of the enthusiasm that manuscript curator William Knoll has for the project. Indeed, as far as this project is considered, the best asset of either of these institutions is probably the manuscript curator. Um, Will Knoll's groundbreaking collaborative work on the Archimedes Compsess has landed him, as many of you know, on the front page of the New York Times, I think perhaps more than once. The project currently comprises a team of 50 or so individuals, many of them noted scientists, and their scientific analysis of the manuscript has included multispectral and mechanical resonance imaging. 
Dr. Knowles, perhaps the best example of just how much we stand to gain from such collaborations between scientists and scholars interested in manuscripts and the text contained in them. I'd like to talk now about specific benefits of DNA analysis. We've identified four contributions that this study can make to manuscript studies, and these benefits range in scope from critical debate surrounding single volumes to databases potentially containing the information about thousands of organisms and manuscripts. Benefit number one, resolving debates concerning individual manuscripts. Scores of puzzles and debates surrounding single codices might be resolved, or at least one position in these debates is substantiated through these analyses. An example of this is the famous Bury Bible, one of the treasures of the Parker Library that dates to the 12th century. The Gesta Sacristarum, a late 13th century history of the Bury St. Edmunds Abbey, where the Bury Bible is made, states that the parchment used for the Bible's illustrations was a special, expensive lot brought in, quote, from regions of Scotia. And this was because Master Hugo, the illuminator, could find no local parchment to suit him. And this story seems to be borne out by the book, in which all the illuminations are on pieces of parchment that are glued right on top of pieces of parchment that are sewn into the gatherings. So this 13th century text relates a story that what, it, what the, the, the book today looks like would seem to match up with. One problem, scholars can't agree on what the medieval Latin word scotia refers to. Some say Scotland, some say Ireland. Where did he get this special parchment? Well, that's just the sort of thing that if we had herd populations from dated datable manuscripts, we could solve. We could say, well, we have the first, twelfth, and fifteenth cousins of Scottish sheep, but no Irish sheep represented, or so forth. I don't suspect that was actually sheepskin, uh, since he was being very fussy about it, but you, you see the point. And I think that we could probably in this room generate dozens of potential scenarios where we could use this. I suspect if we could prove that we could do this successfully, these might start to come out of the woodwork, where folks say, oh, I've been wondering for years about this. Could DNA answer it? So that's the first benefit. The second would be analyzing the construction of codices. Although parchment's quite durable, as are the books created from it, many manuscripts have, of course, deteriorated substantially due to poor handling, fire, moisture, overzealous binders, misguided conservation efforts, you name it. These books have, have suffered in various ways. Often this results in the loss of the codicological information necessary to understand how the manuscript was initially constructed. But because bifolia, and in some cases whole gatherings, were made from the same individual organism, DNA identification to the level of the individual organism might allow scholars to deduce the original gatherings and how they were combined to create a codex. This has the potential to redefine the study of codicology, which currently relies on features such as scribal marks and indications of where leaves were sewn in during the binding process. So, for example, visible thread might be something you look for. It relies on these things to understand how books were put together. And, of course, that's exactly the sort of data that gets erased by all these hazards I just mentioned. Overzealous binders will cut off your choir marks. Overzealous conservation scientists will chop your pages up and put them on stubs, and then your evidence is lost. Furthermore, since the gathering was the basic unit of work for scribes copying text, and many manuscripts contained booklets added decades apart, literary scholars and historians interested in dating these texts might be able to do so through DNA analysis. Similar work has already been very fruitful in study of paper manuscripts, where watermarks as opposed to DNA sequences have been very useful in understanding how codices that were damaged in this way might have originally been put together. Benefit number three, studying the parchment trade. Little is known about the medieval parchment trade, a deficit that could be remedied by this project. It's assumed that most parchment was produced and used locally, making just a short trip from the, uh, the butcher shop over to the parchment maker. And of course, a lot of it was probably done within one monastery that was selling wool, eating sheep, making their own books. DNA tests on manuscripts which showed localized, close-related herd animals would confirm this. Results showing widely dispersed organisms, however, would provide data for tracking the movement of herd animals and skins in the parchment trade. Although no research has yet been completed on this topic, Berger, in the study previously mentioned, recognized the potential of discovering, quote, patterns of distribution and trade routes of parchment, end quote after they successfully identified it to, to the level of species. And we're thinking here that quite a few hypotheses could be tested. So, for example, our assumption is that the earlier in the medieval period you are, the more likely that you would have local herd populations being used locally and less evidence of a trade route. 
We know by the later medieval period that, for instance, there was quite a trade route for paper, uh, for boards and bindings also. And so we think that later in medieval period, and then especially in university areas, London, Paris, Oxford, that we're likely to see more of an evidence of a parchment trade. We don't know, but this is just this type of thing we can figure out. Also, there are other sort of intriguing possibilities. When I went and met with Christopher Hamill, he mentioned to me that there are a couple of records surviving of monks writing letters asking for money to buy parchment. It so happens that these monastic orders were vegetarian. So maybe that's why they didn't have parchment on hand, because they weren't raising uh, animals to eat. So maybe if you look at manuscripts produced in uh, vegetarian monasteries, you would see quite a, a variety of parchment in one codex instead of uh, a group of relatives. There's lots of, lots of things we can test. And also, I think any talk on vegetarian monks would probably result in a good title and another good poster, so you know, uh, it's, it's worth following up. The fourth benefit, and this is sort of the largest scale, the one that would take the most time and be the hardest to accomplish, would be localizing herds through large-scale databases. Once we had a substantial number of manuscripts tested and the results entered into databases, we would have the ability to localize both herds and manuscripts. Working for manuscripts with known dates in provenance, such as many of those found at the Parker Library, we might be able to construct models showing the likely family descent and local origins of animals and parchment, thereby equipping scholars with a new tool for determining the origins of manuscripts that supersedes our current reliance upon evidence gleaned from paleography, scribal dialect, and contextual clues provided by text. So if you had enough of a database and you were unsure of a manuscript's origin, it wouldn't necessarily prove anything, but it would certainly be instructive to test it and say, well, this seems closely related to herd animals from Oxfordshire from 1420 to 1435. Perhaps all this parchment had been sitting around for 50 years. It's, it's doubtful. Problems that we're encountering. In order to accomplish these three goals, we have to overcome three problems first. One, getting reliable data without damaging the manuscripts. Two, contamination from other sources of DNA. And three, isn't it always the case, money. Problem number one, damage. On some level, this is, of course, obvious. Because of the immense social, historical, and aesthetic value of the manuscripts held by apart institutions, it's crucial that we develop DNA sampling techniques that are scientifically reliable, but minimally destructive and invasive. And of course, this, like everything in life, has a political side to it as well. No one wants to be the curator, the lending institution, or the funding agency attached to the ruin of a manuscript. And I, I should hope that it would be obvious, too, that no one wants to be that individual. So it, it's key that we get these tests right. But a wise man once said, this wise man's name is Terry Bellinger, and he's sitting right over there. Terry Bellinger once said, bibliography is not for sissies. Actually, he said it a lot more than once, I think. And so we have to come right out here and say that, yes, we are talking about destructive procedures here. We're asking to rub, scrape, and perhaps nick some manuscripts because we cannot test DNA without biological materials. But before I alarm you too much, Mr. Derelay, <laughs> I want you to consider that DNA is available at the cellular level and that if I should pass around a parchment leaf in here, your DNA would likely remain on that parchment leaf. Perhaps some of it would remain on your fingers. And we have hope because similar problems have been solved in sampling priceless specimens in natural history museum collections, and this includes human mummies and extinct species and so forth. So we hope that we can develop tests that will yield ample data with minimal impact on the manuscripts. With funding from Johns Hopkins University, we have been able to purchase 11 leaves of medieval manuscripts. These are, this is five from one manuscript and six from another, and three buying credits. And we plan to conduct our initial test later this month on those. Now, our assumption is that the more destructive we are, the better our samples will be. So, <laughs> if we rub this thing down with bleach and it cut us a nice sized piece of it off and soak it in a buffer and then blend it in a blender, we think we can get some good DNA on it out of it. <laughs> or, if we take it and we take a scalpel and we scrub the front of it and we scrub the back of it and then we take a sterile hole puncher and punch a plug right out of the middle, we think we can get good DNA out of that. We also hypothesize that our manuscript curator friends will not let us do that on their manuscripts. <laughs> so 
what we plan to do is use a series of non-invasive uh, techniques, and these would include rubbing it with a swab and also just rubbing the parchment with a piece of metal similar to the back edge of, of a butter knife, and to compare the DNA that we get from the non-invasive procedures with that that we get from the supposedly more accurate, you know, invasive and destructive ones. We're going to document these procedures thoroughly with photographic records, and we'll t report our test results to the curators. We'll also make the parchment leaves themselves available to them. Here's what we did to this parchment leaf. Here's the data we got. And we're hoping to develop a range, and we're hoping that on the lower end of this range that is not destructive at all, that we develop tests that get data that's similar to the good destructive test, and that then they can choose from this range of options, yes, you may, you may do this to this manuscript uh, based on the, the data that we provide them. Problem number two, contamination. The main reason that destructive tests are presumably better than non-destructive ones is the problem of contamination in medieval parchment. Everyone involved in work of this nature is aware of the abundant potential for contamination of DNA samples and the subsequent potential for contamination in the laboratory when tests are being conducted. So, for example, a representative from one of the laboratories with whom we're contracting to run our DNA samples said she had, in fact, um, ran samples from swabs rubbed on medieval parchment and got lots and lots of mouse DNA. So <laughs> this, is, this is sort of problem we're dealing with. And we're assuming that there's centuries of human DNA on these leaves. Monks, scholars, codicologists, all this should be there. Um, not to mention the mice, the hide glue. So as bad as all that sounds, that's not the real problem. Because what, the way this works is we order primers from the laboratory that essentially look for the needle in the haystack of DNA. They, you can order a primer that says, I would like to target and search for in this test only that portion of the DNA that, say, makes this a sheep and not any other mammal. And it will essentially render white noise all the mice, monks, high glue, everything else. Um, the problem we suspect, you can also order a primer that targets other things. We know this is all sheep skin, so could you please uh, send us the primer that will distinguish that portion of the DNA sequence that differentiates one individual sheep from another, which is where we're headed. Um, the real problem, we think, is going to be contamination from other species, others of the same species. And there's really no better environment for this than a medieval manuscript, where you've had several centuries of this happening, right, where one sheep is rubbing against the other over and over and over again, <laughs> and this DNA is rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. And so we'll know pretty soon if we test one leaf in three places and we get three sheep that, that we have trouble with our results, right? Um, if we can reliably get different animals on different leaves and reliably get the same ones, then we'll know we've gotten past this problem. So that's sort of the main problem. This is also complicated by the fact that ancient DNA, as it's called, is derived from dry materials almost always, um, is particularly susceptible to this because dust gets everywhere, and this dust has DNA in it. So if, for instance, I had a fresh vial of blood, the DNA in that vial is hopefully relatively uncontaminated. It's pretty easy to get an uncontaminated sample and to keep it in that vial and test it. Um, not only is this parchment contaminated, but if you put it in tubes and you open one up, well, then it comes out as dust and it gets all over all the other samples that you're working with. So there are all sorts of problems with contamination, and really our main problem is going to be sorting this out. And finally, the third problem that we're working with at this point is cost. As you might imagine, it's a significant barrier. Our initial tests are costing us around $1,000 per sample. So you can see right away that for the amount of cost to run samples of every leaf of a medieval codex, you could probably buy the thing. And, you know, six digits will still get you some fairly nice books in this market. So um, if you talk about doing entire libraries, well, you're talking about a heck of a budget at that rate. Now, partly this is a problem of scale at this point because we're running a few tests at a time, um, and partly because we have to hire specialists in special labs, and there aren't that many people who do this type of DNA. So, for example, in that problem I just mentioned where you t open the test tube and that DNA starts floating out, um, they have special laboratories where every step is done in a separate room. 
because they're designed to, to handle these problems. And so that makes it more expensive. At some point fairly soon into a large-scale experiment of this type, it would be cost-effective to build your own lab um, pretty quickly, actually. And we hope that uh, the way, as, as a sort of model, Will Knowles worked with Archimedes Palimpsest with so many scientists at other institutions using the facilities there, we're hoping that pretty quickly we'll be able to get institutional partners without paying so much. So to sum all this up, at the moment we have two excellent partners in these curated manuscripts, enough samples of parchment to begin work, funding from Hopkins around our initial test layer this month, and we have a grant proposal out in hopes of getting more funding and larger funding. We'll be running the test at the end of the month, and after that, hope to publish the findings of the result, and after which I hope to have some exciting progress to report to all of you. Thanks. It's our tradition to go straight to the wine. <laughs> but this is a small enough group and intelligent looking enough so that I'm willing to risk questions, uh, especially given the preliminary state of the project. I was always taught that if I was in Litchfield, I drove my herd of sheep out to London. Mm -hmm. So any London manuscript is going to be a mess, right? It could be, and, and those are the sorts of, those are exactly the sorts of questions we would target. And, you know, like I said, our assumption would be that if you're, if you're in a monastery that's selling wool, eating the meat, making books, you know, why would you drive your sheep to London? So that's exactly the kind of thing we would test. So you may find yourself doing better from provincial locations. It could be, but, and, and that's sort of the whole point is really when you talk about that sort of thing with parchment trade, no one knows any of the answers to that yet. So it's exactly the point. It's wide open. Yes, in the back. I think so. Um, I mean, I must say that it's, it's a perverse reaction to say, oh, and, you know, these tools are very hard to learn, so I'm going to think of something even harder to do, you know, which is, <laughs> but, it, but it's in my nature. But I, I really do because the, the thing is that at some point, paleography and um, dialect analysis just tend to fall apart. All you can do is say, this is as close as we can get, and there's no way to get any closer, really. And, and there's, there's, so at some point, it seems that it trails off into often a period of decades in a fairly large geographical region in some cases. And sometimes folks have tried for, for decades and just thrown their hands up and said, well, we just can't. It's too many, too many dialects stacked one on top of another and these relics of copying and recopying and recopying. Whereas DNA is fairly precise. If we can get to the individual organism, we know something specific and concrete about every leaf in that book. And so I really do think that it will produce something much more solid. The, the problem really is scale, because if you know all the animals in one book or ten books, you still haven't really pushed it too far. And that's why we had started initially with those that are dated and datable. Because if we really have a good... If you think about it from that end, conversely, you could say, well, we actually have 200 animals here that we can build from that we know where, where the book was made at the least. So, I think it's very promising. Yes? Uh, the skin's datable after the DNA of the project. So, in other words, you're saying, can we tell from just one DNA sample how old something is? Not that I know of without relating it to other herd populations. You must relate it to data. As far as I know. And that's, uh, unfortunately, my brother was, was planning, hoping to be here, and he couldn't make it last minute. That's the kind of question he would know better. As far as I know, they don't use DNA, purely DNA, though, to date biological materials. Of course, that's an important problem. Right. The manuscripts are not so numerous. Right. And uh, you find the same. But what do you find in the other manuscripts? The same species, of course. You can distinguish by DNA right. sheep from calves. Right. Sure. 
saying is that for for non-monastic or non-localized production in databases, of course, nonetheless, all the other benefits from it, that is, you know, the, the resolving questions about single books, analyzing the code ecology, all those remain. The So we have a sort of sequence of, well, these are things we can do, um, you know, right away, questions about one book. Yes. There is, though, as I was, as I was saying a moment ago, on manuscripts that are data and dateable, there's quite a lot of data. There are quite a lot of individual organisms in one book. So you really can start to get a lot out of a few dated and dateable manuscripts. You know, as, as a sort of post in the ground to start pegging other stuff to. So. Yes. Uh, well, it depends on. Um, Yeah. Well, I, I said the same things to them as I just said now. If, if you know how individuals are related to another, uh, you could tell you could tell something from if one book was all animals closely related to one another, it would tell you something about the production, about how that parchment was, you know, how those animals are raised and used all at once and made. If, as he's talking about with, with books produced in town, probably books produced later, they're quite mixed, it tells us, again, something about production. Um, but find the individuals and their relatedness is um, has to do has to pertain to questions of building models of population per populations and genetics, and that's again the sort of large scale stuff. So as far as explaining that to grant people, they're going to realize right away how expensive that would be. So you can say, you know, um, we can prove that this can be done. We just need enough money to prove it can be done. Um, some of the other benefits of it actually don't rely on the particular genetic relatedness of animals. Just knowing uh, that you know this sheep is here and the same organism is over on folio 12. Well, presumably, perhaps they were one piece. You know, there's how many pieces in the book could have been connected to that. So only some things pertain to that their relatedness to one another, and those are the sort of Way down the road, large database kinds of things. Right. Yes. Um, I was wondering about the, the feasibility in terms of dating of comparing um, genetic material from manuscripts with genetic material from, say, uh, clothing or tapestries or something that we can date to a certain time period. And is there any idea of using that? Um, I don't know how that would work. Well, the question would be, um, I guess, how would you, how would you go through the lengthy process of proving the time and place of the other thing first? You see, that would be, right. it would be as long of a process. And anything like um, clothing or paper has this problem too. I mean, paper is full of DNA because it comes from plants. Well, I'm but it's well. In uh, Colonial Williamsburg, the statistics are fascinating. And I'm making these up, but the general notion is quite correct. <laughs> there are three known pieces of clothing from Williamsburg. There are 27 barrels known to have been made in Williamsburg. There are 87 pieces of furniture known to have been made in Williamsburg. And there are 65,000 books of manuscripts known to have been made in Williamsburg. And I think it can be said in the Middle Ages that we know at least so much more about manuscripts than we do about clothing or china or silver or glass in terms of uh, the localization possibilities. And it's not good, but it's certainly a lot better than trying to do it from barrels. I don't know of any medieval clothes that survive. I don't know if any, the only thing I've ever seen are pink. One question, uh, Mr. Invasive uh, <laughs> Scholar. Okay. 
I prefer destructive. A generous move. Okay. How much do you really want from my manuscript? One quarter <laughs> inch by one quarter inch? Will that do you? Oh, that's that's actually huge in terms of DNA. Okay, well that's good to know, right? I mean, we're not talking about postage stamps. No, so we're talking about ultimately just rubbing in such a way that it doesn't, you can't see after I rubbed it that, that I was there. Would a strip one inch by one sixteenth of an inch, would that be That useful? would be tons of data, because think of how many cells are in there. We just need cells. We're just checking. Yes. <laughs> and that's the kind of destruction that we're going to wreck on our own manuscripts. It would really be quite minor. I mean, it already has nicks and edges bigger than what we're going to take out of it. You know. But still... So you will tell them. <laughs> well, we're doing high-quality digital scans before and after, so you see what we're taking out. But um, still, any any sliver, no curator is going to let you have. So, other questions? One final point. There's a parallel with paper studies and its watermarks. It is possible to take any watermarked piece of paper, and that's 50% of all paper used for printing in the hand press period and to make a digital fingerprint of that paper. And it's possible to put that information in the database. Uh, David Benio, this is completely not me, but if you had the money, presumably we could take, uh, we could localize a piece of paper made in the hand press period to the same mold. It's just money. We might, and if we have any idea where any of the paper made from that mold came from, or where it all came from, or something like that. But it, it's the expense, isn't it? Uh, David, do you want to comment on this at all? Is anybody doing it? Timothy Sullivan's talking about looking at watermarks, mm -hmm. sort of cross watermarks, and uh, the end papers of these naval appointment uh, volumes. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, Tell it. You should have told me, but not. <laughs> 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 well, they, they could, or somebody could. Hey, but uh, you say it just takes a lot of effort. You 